Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have a more normal episode, and tomorrow I'm going to be posting a wonderful interview about Japanese baseball in California history, a topic that I didn't know much about, but was very curious to learn about. Now, let's get to today's episode. Today we are talking about the military government that managed the state of California in the intervening years between 1846, when Sloat invaded California, and 1850, with the famous Compromise of 1850 that staved off the Civil War for a little more than a decade and made California a state. In that time period in between, California was effectively controlled by a military government. And when we say military government, we do need to be specific here. What do we mean? There are many kinds of military government that have existed throughout history uh, to deal with a lack of a civilian control of a society. Probably the most famous type of military government is called martial law. Martial law is instituted as a temporary measure to deal with chaos or a sense of anarchy within a society. Martial law is typically instituted during situations of a foreign attack. Like in the case of Pearl Harbor, martial law was instituted to protect the island because the leaders weren't certain whether or how long the attack might continue. Other cases in which martial law was instituted are cases of acts of God, as they're called, like the Chicago Fire and the San Francisco Earthquake. Uh, There are other cases that martial law was instituted due to mob actions, uh, but I hesitate to use the term there because it has certain political connotations. Uh, Some of these uh, actions, uh, quote-unquote mob actions, include the Freedom Riders in Alabama um, and the waterfront strikes in San Francisco. Speaking of which, there are just so many topics like the waterfront strikes in San Francisco that I'm so excited to explore. Um, And there's this temptation that I have uh, to want to jump around in California history. Um, But for the sake of the listeners, I want to keep marching forward chronologically um, as we continue to unpack our state's complicated and interesting history. Ultimately, we must march forward. Anyway, uh, for most other places around the world, martial law has typically been associated with a coup d'etat or an attempt by a party internal to the nation or country uh, to take over the government. Um, Other things that are associated with martial law are uh, curfews, as well as suspension of things like habeas corpus, uh, basically being able to arrest people uh, without giving them trial just to hold them. At the end of the day, though, these uh, are typically are just temporary measures aimed at returning order to a society. The opposite of that might be a military junta, uh, which is a term of recent use to describe uh, a group military dictatorship. The term junta uh, actually originates with a coalition of military leaders that banded together to fight off uh, the invasion of Napoleon, Essentially, this is a military government controlled by a few as opposed to uh, a strongman government controlled by uh, one military leader, which is another variation. Ultimately, there are many variations and formulations of military governments, 
But what we're talking about today is a military occupation and a military paving the way for colonization. There's a lot of fun international law stuff that we could get into around the differences between annexation and invasion and all that, uh, but that's less important here. The military force occupying California was always seen as temporary, and in fact, the military force was quick to put in power the hands of local leaders um, from the free previous government. Um, and it's important to remember that many of the Californios uh, welcomed this change in government, uh, or at least passively accepted it. Um, again, going back to the concept that we've talked about for a long time in the show, which is that the government of Mexico, located in central Mexico, saw California as a frontier, not necessarily to be micromanaged or overly dedicate resources toward. In that sense, the area of California was, in many ways, used to local control, which would play well with how uh, the military government would handle things. So in many sense, the military government uh, was not very top-down, but instead empowered locals uh, to continue to manage things, just because they didn't have the resources uh, to have a top-down government. Uh, that would change, of course, later on. Now, the military government would rely on locals for leadership for many reasons uh, in these intervening years. The state of California used an alcalde uh, system, which is a medieval system that was created uh, in Spain uh, during the Reconquista. Um, if you're not familiar with the period, uh, the Reconquista period was a period in which uh, Muslims uh, were driven out of Spain. They had taken large parts of the land of Spain. And this essentially uh, gave birth uh, to the modern state of Spain as we understand it, ultimately. Essentially, this local official, uh, the alcalde, or uh, magistrate, had both judicial and administrative powers. Uh, they were elected by a city council annually, and in their origin, these local, we'll just call them mayors now, uh, because that's essentially what the term came to mean, were um, assistant judges, ultimately. The cabildo was the local council that would elect these mayors uh, annually. And those of individuals, uh, parts of the cabildo, uh, could be appointed by the king or take the office through ancestry or could even be elected uh, by the city that they represented it. Now back to California. Um, in addition to essentially a town council and a mayor, uh, there were also justices, including a justice of the peace, as well as a justice of the countryside, the former which, as it makes sense, uh, their main job was to keep order, a justice of the peace, and prevent uh, vigilantism, essentially people acting outside of the law, and the latter, the justice of the countryside, their main duty was to handle issues of land and land rights. All of these local offices um, were how government was managed within this kind of frontier domain. Now, in terms of state government, at least pre preceding the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, uh, the highest-ranking commander, President of California, would typically be the person in charge. Uh, the complications of this we'll discuss in a second, um, but essentially these, uh, the military leaders that had the most power were also the highest-ranking individuals in the state government. Now, we've discussed uh, some of the leadership changes that occurred during the fighting beginning with the Bear Flag Revolt, 
um, going all the way through the fall and then ending with the treaty in January in California. After the treaty, John C. Fremont was appointed as the military governor by Commodore Stockton. However, in early March, there was a shakeup in terms of command, and Fremont was relieved of his duty, and one of his subordinates, Richard Barnes Mason, was placed in charge of the government. Mason would retain control of the position for the next two years. Now, you might recognize the name Mason. Mason, uh, Richard Barnes Mason, came from a very important Virginia family. Uh, his grandfather, uh, George Mason IV, was essentially the principal author of the Bill of Rights in our Constitution. Like many of the Founding Fathers, the Masons were one of those aristocratic, landed gentlemen, Virginia families uh, with access to quality education and resources. Richard Mason himself was a lifelong soldier, first being commissioned in 1817 when he was just 20 years old. Uh, he served all across the Midwest and the South. His career in the military was at best satisfactory, however. Uh, some sources say he complained of his low pay and uh, would engage in land speculation in order to meet his needs. Uh, the years of the Mexican-American War would uh, be some of his last. He would actually die in July of 1850, uh, just after leaving his position as governor of California. He would die in uh, some barracks in a fort in Missouri. Back to California, though. Fremont was irate uh, by attempts to remove him from power, and at first he resisted. There may have been a duel in the works between uh, Mason and Fremont, although that did not come to fruition. Fremont would suffer consequences for his insubordination and unwillingness to give up the position. Kearney attempted to have Fremont court-martialed, which ultimately came to little consequences. Fremont's rise to power in early California history would ultimately be unimpeded by these early political fights. Now, back to Mason, who is the governor of California at this point. Uh, Kearney and Mason quickly realized that they needed to develop relationships with the Native Americans in California, which represented a much larger population than the Californios that they had recently defeated in battle. One of the first things they did was to appoint uh, Mariano Vallejo and John Sutter as Indian sub-agents. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, uh, what is an Indian sub-agent? Um, you probably have some ideas, but this concept actually goes back to the Non-Intercourse Act, which was originally passed by George Washington. This is one of those things that I love about history, is that in many senses, it is one of those never-ending Russian nesting dolls. You can keep uncovering more and more dolls inside, which help to give more and more context to what you're talking about. As historians, one of the hardest things to do is to pick an arbitrary marker for when you want to stop uncovering more and more nesting dolls, because it could become easily uh, a never-ending journey, like the search for the middle of the earth. Uh, but stories, ultimately, in order for them to make sense, need a flow. Uh, they need a structure. They need a beginning, middle, and end. And I've tried to do my best here to tell the stories in ways that don't wander too far off the beaten path. But on the flip side, hopefully what I'm doing is encouraging you to chase these rabbit trails into the woods when you become curious and begin to ask yourself why something is the way it is and chase down those answers. 
I honestly think it is one of the most fulfilling things you can do as a person uh, is to explore, unpack, and ask why and how things got to be the way they are. Anyway, let's talk about these non-in-course acts. And I'm saying acts plurally here because it is not one single act. It is a series of acts that were passed in 1790, 1793, 1796, 1799, 1802, and 1834. The purpose of these acts was meant to regulate commerce between Native Americans and American settlers as they pushed westward. Here is the text related to land purchases and sales that most interests us in terms of this podcast. Now, for the record, the first version in 1790 uh, did not change uh, all that much from the final or until the final version of the 1834 Act. Um, now, here's what it says: "Quote: No sale of lands made by any Indians or any nation or tribe of Indians within the United States shall be valid to any person or persons, or to any state, whether having the right of preemption." to such lands or not, unless the same shall be made and duly executed at some public treaty held under the authority of the United States." End quote. Now, I could give you my interpretation of what this means, but let's let uh, the man that originally uh, led to the passing of this law, George Washington, explain. Uh, here is a excerpt from a speech George Washington gave to the Seneca people in New York about the purpose of the legislation here, and it should give it some context. Quote, In the first place, I observe to you and request, it may sink deep in your minds that it is my desire and the desire of the United States that all the miseries of the late war should be forgotten and buried forever. That in the future, the United States and the six nations should be truly brothers promoting each other's prosperity by acts of mutual friendship and justice. I am not uninformed that the six nations have been led into some difficulties with respect to the sale of their lands since the peace. But I must inform you that these evils arose before the present government of the United States was established, when the separate states and individuals under their authority undertook to treat with the Indian tribes respecting the sale of their lands. But the case is entirely altered. The general government only has the power to treat with the Indian nations, and any treaty formed and held without its authority will not be binding. Here, then, is the security for the remainder of your lands. No state or, nor person can purchase your lands unless at some public treaty held under the authority of the United States. The general government will never consent to your being defrauded, but it will protect you in all your just rights. Hear well, and let it be heard by every person in your nation, that the President of the United States declares, and the general government considers itself bound to protect you in all the lands secured you by the Treaty of Fort Stanwix the 22nd of October, 1784, accepting such parts as you may have since fairly sold to persons authorized to purchase of you, end quote. 
Now, one more uh, comment from this speech that we will look at here. Um, and this was said later on in the speech, which kind of contradicts uh, his initial tone in suggesting that uh, the United States and these native nations were brothers. Here's what he says later on. Quote, that besides the before-mentioned security for your land, you will perceive by the law of Congress for regulating in trade and intercourse with Indian tribes the fatherly care of the United States intend to take of the Indians. For the particular meaning of this law, I refer to you the explanations given thereof by Colonel Picking at Tioga, which with the law are herewith delivered to you. End quote. The emphasis there is on fatherly care, and that fatherly care will change and adapt as the history of the United States goes on. Now, the first challenge to this law by Native people took place, as some of you already know, in the state of Georgia. Georgians were eager to evict the Cherokee from their land, and in the famous court case, um, the Supreme Court decided that they did not have the jurisdiction uh, to adjudicate this issue. That decision was actually reversed a few years later in a case with Worcester versus Georgia, where the Supreme Court changed their minds and decided they, in fact, did have jurisdictions. Now, we could go into more of what this actually means, jurisdiction and these issues, uh, but again, I refer back to the Russian nesting dolls here. Regardless of what the Supreme Court said, their interpretations needed to be enforced, and Andrew Jackson basically lulled them, LOL'd them, which should explain many things that would come after. We bring this up at the end of this episode because a lot of early California history is going to be fought over land, land rights, and actually much of California's entire history will be caught up in issues of land rights as well. Next time, we will continue our story of the military government in California. See you next time.